All right, this is Jim Jesse. Welcome to Rock and Roll Law Podcast, the podcast about music law, music and everything in between. This episode, uh, squarely on the music law side, I know I've done some um, lists, uh, several podcasts where we bring on guest attorneys, talk about different areas of law, and certainly do music lists. But this, we're going to focus in on music copyright law in particular, and I'm very excited to have as my guest today, uh, professor Tim McFarland, a professor of law at the University of Laverne College of Law, which is in Ontario, California, which is just east of L.A., uh, a great place to be um, to study and teach music copyright law. Um, Tim is a professor there. His experience uh, centers on intellectual property, uh, particularly areas of copyright and trademark. His scholarship, quote, aims to ensure that the law aligns with the realities of human creativity, close quote. That sounds, that sounds ambitious, um, and I hope <laughs> I hope you attain that, that ambitious uh, ambitious goal. Uh, you may have your work cut out for you in that endeavor. Tim, welcome to Rock and Roll Law Podcast. Certainly, thank you, Jim, and uh, I'm really excited to, to be on it with you. In particular, I wanted to talk about he uh, sent me an article that he had written. Um, it was published in uh, 2015 um, in the Vanderbilt Journal of Entertainment and Technology Law as it relates to uh, as it relates to joint authorship in general, and in particular a lawsuit that I I wasn't familiar with, and I don't think most people are, um, where Johnny Johnson sued Chuck Berry, alleging that he helped uh, co-author some of Chuck Berry's greatest hits or biggest hits, and given. Uh, Chuck's passing earlier this year in March of 2018. I thought this would be a great time to talk about an area that I'm fascinated by and, and, and that I think uh, certainly needs more attention that is joint authorship in general and in particular as it relates to music. So Tim, first of all, I don't, not sure most people, maybe unless music aficionados would know who Johnny Johnson is. Can you briefly tell our audience who he is? Yeah, Johnny was, uh, I, I think, you know, most notably in terms of, of history, he was uh, the piano player uh, for at the beginning of, of Chuck Berry's career, who who played piano both on record and on tour with Chuck, uh, starting you know at the very beginning, you know into um, as a as a you know regular collaborator into the early 1960s, and then they played together on and off for. The rest of Johnny Johnson's life, uh, he passed away in 2005, I believe. Correct. Uh, and uh, he was, so, you know, he's a, uh, you know, rock and roll piano player, but he's also a great blues piano player. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think blues aficionados might know of him, or if they don't, uh, you know, would, would like to know about him, I think. He uh, played with Albert King as well, the great blues guitarist right. and singer. Uh, played with him after Chuck. I think while while Chuck was uh, in prison, actually, uh, I think Johnny uh, joined Albert King's band and then rejoined Chuck after that. Um, and then also has played with Eric Clapton. Went on tour with him in Europe. Um, I think you know after uh, in the 90s um, mm-hmm. or late 80s. And then has also played with Keith Richards um, and the Stones and uh, Rat Dog. Uh, if people know that group with uh, Bob Weir, I think from The Grateful Dead. Um, for okay. the Rat Dog kind of spinoff group, and sure. and he was a Johnny Johnson fan, and uh, 
asked Johnny to join the group, at least on tour. And so Johnny played with them quite a bit, and there's a group called the Kentucky Headhunters uh, that Johnny uh, linked up with and recorded some some music. Uh, you can find his piano playing on their records, and I think uh, right. had a release in the last couple of years of a, of an unreleased album with Johnny. So uh, so Johnny, and he was born um, in uh, Fairmont, West Virginia, and made his way, he was uh, also in, uh, uh, made his way to the Midwest um, to, uh, uh, he was a steel worker in Illinois and the East St. Louis area, right. and that's how he ended up hooking up with Chuck Berry, who's from St. Louis, and actually he, it was his band in East St. Louis who had a regular gig at the Cosm- Cosmopolitan Club there, um, and uh-huh. he hired Chuck Berry uh, to fill in for a saxophone player. <laughs> it was a drummer, Johnny on piano, and a uh, saxophone player in, in Johnny's trio, I think called the Sir John's Trio or the Johnny Johnson Trio, uh, uh, I think interchangeably, and it was New Year's Eve 1952 or, or three. three I think. Yeah, I think yeah. that's right, that when uh, they first performed that, together. Yep, yeah, he, Chuck was... That Johnny had seen Chuck play and saw something in Chuck. Uh, maybe, you know, one of the first uh, steps to Chuck's road to immortality and uh, and That's hired right. him to, to fill in that night. And uh, uh, the rest uh, became history. And Chuck kind of took right. over the group and went from there. Yeah. Um, yes, he did. We'll talk about that later. But yeah. so, and also, I should mention, Johnny Johnson was inducted into the Rock Hall in 2001, yes. I think. Uh, in no small part to Keith Richards. So, and you actually just after uh, Chuck passed away in March of this year, um, wrote an article uh, just pointing out uh, this this lawsuit that was not primarily mentioned. Not not surprisingly, I guess, not really brought up in obits and tributes to Chuck Berry. Correct? Yeah, and I'm not so surprised. It, it was you know it, it was brought up um, in passing in in a few of them. Um, but just very much in passing, and uh, and kind of the same thing with Johnny Johnson. To me, you know, it's less important that the you know in terms of the history, I think that the lawsuit is mentioned, but more important that Johnny Johnson is mentioned, um, right. and that you know his relationship with Chuck Berry, I think, is a fascinating and important thing, and um, you know, and so that's why you know I thought I had something to offer in terms of um, you know paying tribute to Chuck Berry's legacy and what we can what we can take from it. Right. So Johnson, to to get to the lawsuit, Johnson, after years, I might add, and I should add that this his lawsuit's ultimately thrown out for statute of limitations reasons, and we're not really going to talk a lot about that because I want to emphasize, I want to talk more about the joint authorship, but he, he sues Barry in, I believe, 2000. And in general, what what were his allegations? His allegations were that he co-wrote, co-created the music, uh, not the lyrics. He, you know, conceded up front, uh, you know, from, you know, perhaps even in the initial pleading in the lawsuit uh, that he had nothing to do with the lyrics. Those are all Chucks. But that he co-created the music to, you know, most every uh, Chuck Berry song from essentially, you know, from the beginning of Chuck's recording career and with uh, – in 1955 or so, with the exception of Maybelline, which was the first one, Johnny said, I didn't have anything to do with Maybelline. Um, right. But but most everyone from from there on, Johnny says, I helped create the music for that, and I never got 
credit or compensation as a songwriter. And so Johnny is trying to, to you know, get that credit and compensation um, at this, you know, later date. So what, I mean, these are primarily recorded in Chicago, the chess record sessions, um, correct? Or is that when most of this stuff was, I mean, most of his stuff, including his biggest hits, were recorded? Yes, I think uh, uh, almost almost exclusively at chess studios uh, in in Chicago with Phil and Leonard Chess as the producers, uh, and uh, and Johnny would go to would travel with Chuck to uh, Chess Records, you know, travel from St. Louis, East St. Louis area, which was their um, you know home and base of operations right. to Chicago to to play with him. Um, but you know one one aspect that you know is delved into in the article and some other folks out there who who have written and and thought about this relationship and dispute that Johnny didn't play on every single right. Chuck Berry track. Um, so you know, so that's that is you know part of the story is that Johnny wasn't playing on everything. But what Johnny is saying is um, you know, and that kind of coincides with he's not claiming joint authorship or co-authorship in every song. And, and Johnny is trying to say, you know, here's the ones that I contributed to uh, creatively and I should get, uh, you know, a share in the proceeds going backwards but also going forwards. So give us an idea of what songs or some of the songs he's claiming because to, amazingly I was reading this and in the pleadings I, – I, I assume his lawyers just put in songs that Johnny under oath is like, no, that, that I didn't write that or don't count that song. In fact, one of them I thought was a, I thought I'd read was a, actually a count Basie song. So what, yes. <laughs> which I'm like, maybe the attorney should have checked with Johnny before filing the pleading. But anyway, yes. so what songs are we talking about here? Right there. <laughs> yeah, it's just a little, I'm like, what? I, I couldn't believe that. I mean, this is the yeah, whole basis I, of the lawsuit are these songs. Yes, and and you know, doing my you know kind of the historical fact checking I, I'm working working from here is yeah I see that in this in the deposition and also in amended pleadings you see that the song list changes, and you know I think one of the you know Chuck Berry's lawyer I think has said publicly uh, you know has cited that as a reason to doubt Johnny Johnson's you know credibility and and the credibility of the lawsuit and. What I do is, I mean, I think there's an argument for that, but I think if you dig deeper and think about it more deeply, um, what what appears to be the case is that uh, that this, you know, there was a song list created perhaps from a Chuck Berry greatest hits, you know, the the liner notes, <laughs> right? Or the they list just threw of everything in the, the back. Yeah, yeah, and that was, and you know, you know, we all know as lawyers that you know we we do our best to have best practices, but sometimes there's timing, et cetera, that goes into things. And so, however it happened, you had this list that when when Johnny gets you know the the interrogatories and then when he goes under oath at deposition, he says no, you know that, <laughs> I, I didn't, I wasn't on that song, and you know here here uh, yes yes on that song, no on this one, right? And and I think so if you dig deeper, it actually adds to Johnny's credibility. Yeah, um, I agree as, with that. You know, yeah. when you're talking about Johnny himself, because it would have been much easier for him to say, yeah, all those. Yeah, um, I agree. You know, everything. I, I think it's more on his lawyers than, than he, I think, I mean, uh, but anyway. So what yeah. we're talking, but, I mean, I know the in songs. the, 
Yeah, in the article you mentioned, Nadine, Wee Wee Hours, uh, were particularly talked about. Any other yes. songs? Sweet that, Little that people Sixteen. Would... Okay. Uh, Sweet Little Sixteen was a big one. Uh, back in the USA, uh, Roll Over Beethoven, which is maybe you know the foundational. Yeah. Uh, you know Chuck Berry, Johnny B. Good, of course, is what's most known in the pub- public uh, consciousness. But Johnny B. Good, in many ways, musically, is a rewrite of Roll Over Beethoven. Uh, you know, Roll Over Beethoven was the first song where that, I think, that Chuck Berry sound came together um, the, that we right. that we attribute and was so, you know, to him and was so influential to the, you know, to the Beatles and the Stones. I think they, my, my uh, you know, my argument, you know, from a musical perspective, I'm not a musicologist by training at least, mm-hmm. uh, you, know, a, you know, amateur at best, but I, I think that, that Roll Over Beethoven was was more influential than, say, like Maybelline, um, at least mm-hmm. on the rock groups. Uh, right. c- country, country singers, you know, Merle Haggard uh, was a huge Chuck Berry fan, for instance, and maybe more so because of songs like Maybelline and Memphis. But I think je- the, the, rock, uh, right. the rock and roll sound uh, was, were those songs that Johnny is really claiming to have contributed to. Um, and, you know, the, the country thing was Chuck, and Johnny says that, um, you know, he had that country... Uh, interest and would do the hillbilly, you know, they call it hillbilly music because that's what it was called back then. Uh, right. And he says, you know, he would do this routine and that, you know, when we were playing at the Cosmo and the people would go crazy for it with kind of the country and the foot stomping and everything and that became Mabel and he says, that was Chuck's thing. But the what Johnny brought to it was this kind of blues and jazz background that Chuck had as well, but it's that, yes. you know, that, that piano Which rock came from. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and, and that, so it, it was songs like that, like a, like Roll Over Beethoven, like Back in the USA, like Sweet Little Sixteen, like, you know, so that that Johnny was claiming he he helped create that sound. Well, and Chuck did that on a few songs where, for example, uh, School Days and No Particular Place to Go, it's the same melody, it's just different lyrics. I mean, essentially yep. speaking, and he did that more than once. So. Um, all right, so we're so, talking about Johnny, some of the Johnny. Yeah, go ahead. Johnny was said school days was was one of them, and and that got brought up. The intro to that, uh, the you know the kind of the chiming guitar that was the intro for both school days and for no particular place to go, as you, as you rightly mentioned. Uh, Johnny said that was his that that came from from his piano. Like he came up with that ringing intro on the piano, and Chuck did it for a guitar. But Johnny admits that that came from a Mead Lux Lewis. Who was you know right. a, a older you know blue, blues uh, and jazz player that that came from Johnny. So then you get into these issues of of you know if it's if what Johnny is or you know Chuck is bringing to the table are are ideas from other folks, uh, how protectable are they? And that's one of the fascinating and, and infuriating things of copyright law. Right, because everything in a sense is derivative. I think Chuck even brings that up in his deposition that there's nothing new under the sun, and you know exactly. we're all just treading the same thing. So, what are some other examples? I know the piano in Wee Wee Hours. Johnny said that was my theme song at the Cosmo Club. Uh, the horns from Nadine, uh, correct, are also examples where he said, you know, I wrote these. Yes. Yeah. So. So we we hours and an interesting thing you know Chuck Berry is not known for conceding much I think in in life or in lawsuits uh, had conceded 
that in I, you know in thinking response to the in you know in the pleadings and the answer you know and, and going forward that we we hours that Johnny did the piano came from John so that was one where they said we're not going to argue with you on that that was Johnny's he came up with the piano and Chuck added the lyrics um, but on the rest of them they denied everything else so so there was and, and we we hours was the B side to Maybelline you know, on that first single that uh, that you know under in Chuck's uh, uh, recorded legacy. So right. the horns and Nadine was another example that Johnny points out. The intro to uh, the intro to School Days, um, the the melody uh, and and I think in bass. You know, and this kind of gets where uh, you know I'm I'm not you know I'm not a professional musician. So, uh, but off the top of my head, I think the the melody. Johnny said in Roll Over Beethoven was influenced by the his left hand um, and the you know right. uh, and the bass it's typically plays the playing. bass notes on a yes. piano or keyboard yes right um, and so those were specific examples that Johnny pointed out I think part of the challenge and this t- ties into the the many years that passed between the creation slash recording of these songs and the time of a lawsuit. You know, you get 1950s and early 60s to 2000 right. when he sued. Is is Johnny is struggling to remember the specifics? Um, so those are examples that he could recall and be able to reproduce at the deposition. And in, and interestingly, at the depositions, they're playing. Johnny is is talking about it, but then he's also trying to demonstrate the contributions on piano um, at the deposition and their videotape depositions. So and that video exists. Um, it's Did not. You, well, you have you public. seen this, or were you just reading the transcript? I, I've seen them. So I, I read the transcripts and watched the video. Oh, that'd be cool. So yeah, so Johnny plays piano in the depots, and Chuck plays guitar. Now, you know, when you think about it, going into it, you think uh, it's it's not the same as watching them perform on stage. They're not as comfortable. Right. And, They're demonstrating. And, There's a room full of lawyers. Right. Yeah, it's 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 not the musicians. I think a lot of it can be chalked up to it's not it's it's not you know they're not in their elements um, and they're and they're comfortable environments. So it's not it doesn't make for great kind of it makes for very interesting historical and and musical you know analysis, but not such great you know kind of entertainment. Okay. So Johnny says, look, I came up with some of these piano riffs uh, or that led to these songs. Um, now Chuck, <laughs> not surprisingly, has a different view of it. Um, can you kind of summarize his response to that? And, of course, Chuck, fascinating testimony. At one point he says a song isn't a song until it's a song, <laughs> which I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, well, basically what he was saying is, uh, you know, it's not – done till it's recorded which is i don't know i mean if you can explain that to me that sounds more like a sound recording than a song but yes what was your understanding yes, I, of his defense it was uh other than i did everything on my own yeah. <laughs> they followed my yeah. lead yeah. well yeah and I, I think it could have and that's to me one of the one of the most fascinating parts of this is that chuck could have pretty easily especially given the time that passed and the fact that there aren't recordings out there to contradict you know, recordings, meaning like demo tapes and oh, things. Oh, yeah. uh, that would have been you know, very uh, helpful. Yeah, and that and that's you know we could get into that potentially if you'd like. Uh, the the sure. uh, in short, there there Chuck claims that there were demo tapes for a number of these songs that he created first. 
and that um, but it, when when asked for them in in um, document requests and then asked about it as depositions, he said we look for them, but they were all lost in um, one of I think two fires that occurred. Mm -hmm. uh, one I think at Chuck Berry's you know house or kind of home compound, and one at his office. And so he said all all these tapes that existed were are gone. Um, so what you have then is is his testimony, and so he and Johnny's testimony. But Chuck could pretty easily have said. Uh, yeah, I, these were fully formed songs on these demo tapes mm -hmm. or that I played for Johnny, and Johnny just played along. But Chuck wouldn't say that. He, he like you said, a song is not a song until it's a song, and you get into the deep. When pressed on that, it it sounds like Chuck was taking the position that in the deposition that it really you can't call something a song until it's fully fleshed out on record. That's the song. Right. And, and, and that's a, you know, that can help, um, you know, Johnny. I, I think that not necessarily didn't help Chuck's case, Chuck's defense. I think it more helps Johnny. I agree. I, I agree with that, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think that, that what, one of, that's one of the things that shows that Chuck was, what, you know, adds to what I think is, is you know, he's being as, as open and as testifying with as much candor as possible while still maintaining that he was the the author, the sole author. And so what it came down to, I think, then, is to say, well, then how can you call yourself the song sole author? He said, well, nobody did anything that I didn't want them to do. Right. Um, they're all, I'm the leader, I'm the band leader, I'm the one in control. And so it's, it, that makes it a Chuck Berry song. And, yeah. and I think that, you know, the law lines up with that theory um, to the extent that it quali you know, a song qualifies as a, a work made for hire, or uh, it's a it's a matter of, or if it's a matter of contract law. But the interesting thing, and that covers many many if not most of these situations. But the interesting thing with the the Johnson Berry case is that uh, you know from my analysis, I don't think that a work made for hire uh, Defense, and that was one of the defenses that, that Chuck raised. So that was, you know, his yeah, that was like a on. secondary defense after yep. I'm the sole author. Is yeah, and you you do address that um, as well. Although that's probably not his best defense, as you point yeah, out. Yeah, I, I don't think because Johnson was not a salaried employee, um, so he's not a salaried employee, no. and 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 he had other work. Um, you know, if you know, if anything, and and he was also being paid by the Chess Brothers. And so yeah. that is probably the that, big... That kills it the there. Biggest. And yeah, I love this. <laughs> you know, we think of musicians. Uh, he had to ask... Johnny had to ask off from the steel mills to go work at these sessions. Um, yep. He you know, said I had to get time now. off from the steel mill. <laughs> <laughs> it's just crazy. Um, so yeah, I, I agree. That's not... I mean, you throw it in there, obviously, in case he, he gets, you know, as, as a secondary uh, defense there. But... You know, I guess reading both testimony, I mean, Chuck seemed to me a little more definitive. Um, you know, again, how songs, you know, and I'm someone who writes songs, how they arise is often a mysterious process. So I guess it depends on who you believe started with the riff or the chords, and chords are just a group of notes played at one time. Uh, was it Johnny starting and Chuck would come in on guitar or the other way around? Chuck seemed to say at one point, and I actually wrote in the margins, game over, if this is true. 
I would come in, I'd strum the chords, I'd have the lyrics and, you know, and most or most of the melody. That wasn't really clear. And then the band would, he used the word fill in a lot, I think, it, to try to describe this. So if you believe that, then I suppose you could believe that Chuck's the sole author if you buy that theory of how the songs came about. And I think that's that's true, but I, I think when, and this is one of those instances where if Chuck, when, then then I think he's pressed on. So did, was the melody fully formed? Because right. and you know it, and and Chuck would not go that far. And if and if he just said yes, then I think game over for sure. I yeah, um, and I wish he just you know you just I cannot believe that that they all would come in cold to the studio and just come up with. You know, roll over Beethoven. I mean, if that's the case, geez, that's great. I mean, obviously Chuck had lyrics in mind, um, but I'm just talking the melody because that is. Well, I mean, after the lyrics, yeah. that's the song. It's the melody and the lyrics, basically. I mean, well, and and that's you know, I think there's some you know from from my study of of you know some of the trying to you know I'm looking when I'm preparing this writing this article and researching it. I'm I'm reading. Uh, you know, the um, research, researching the law and the case law, of course, and statutes and, and other scholarship out there. But I'm also diving in to, you know, as good, much extent as I could, the kind of the musicology of it. And so what, yes. and this is, this gets back to, like you said at the, at the beginning, my interest of how does the law align and intersect with the reality of creative arts and what artists and are thinking and doing themselves. And so it seems like, you know, there's some, argument that well the song is can be more than just melody and lyrics that's our kind of traditional perhaps sure. western view um and and copyright law the, the law has largely adopted that i think um so so yeah so i think that that's a side element of this of um you know well it, it can it can cause us to think about a question well what constitutes the song but right. i think if you if you stick with the traditional um perhaps commonly you know un existing definition of like you said melody and lyrics um then here well lyrics are, are off the table because that's that's conceded they're chuck's lyrics so then you're looking at melody and you know if yeah if chuck would have just said the melody was mine then likely you know, he wouldn't go that far and johnny you know johnny when when pressed on it did you contribute to the melody he said yes and they said well when chuck or bring these songs to you was the melody there, and he said, to varying extents. I'm I'm paraphrasing. Right. Um, but I mean, it so, probably and, depended on what song we're talking about yep. too. And, and when you say it came in cold, you know, I think there. So there's this demo tape, but there's also rehearsals. So they so they talked about demo tapes. They also talked about rehearsals, and they also talked about so rehearsals being you know when we're on the road, we would play around you know off the stage, backstage. Uh, between gigs and we'd come up with songs um, or, you know, and that was Johnny and Chuck would say, well, I'm, that's what I'm showing them the songs uh, and, or, you know, getting them to fill in on my songs. And then there's also the Cosmo club and that comes mm -hmm. up a lot in Chuck's testimony, especially saying, you know, these songs, all of them had their roots in what we did in the Cosmo club in East St. Mm -hmm. Louis. And, and so, you know, that's like, where, you know, at least early on, I don't think they were coming in cold in the sense of, right. you know, these things were being worked out on the right. road and in and in these local gigs. Right. Didn't In fact, didn't Keith, uh, two things about Keith uh, that I, I wanted to mention earlier. One is that wasn't part of Johnny's 
uh, I got inspirational, maybe the wrong word, but impetus for filing the lawsuit was was Keith sort of saying, hey, you you did help shape these songs, or we're part of the author. And then I believe at one point in, a, in your article, you mentioned that Keith had mentioned that the way these chords were structured, they sure look like piano chords as opposed to guitar chords. And I don't think that's a small point because the chords to me suggest the melody and the chords, you know, to me, who comes up with the chords is is um, is important. Yes. And so, yeah, Keith, that's I think Keith's biggest yeah, role and contribution to to you know this like you said the inspiration or impetus for the lawsuit is him you know him playing with and because Keith had never played with Johnny until the until Keith took on the role I think somewhat reluctantly knowing you know, having his prior knowledge and relationship with Chuck of the the band director for Taylor Hackford's uh, documentary slash concert film on Chuck, Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, which I believe came out in 86. It was You are correct. So the, that is the, 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 it was the 60th, celebrating the 60th birthday of Chuck Berry at the Fox Theater in St. Louis was the concert portion and mm-hmm. then the documentary. So, so Keith's taken on the band leader for the concert portion, and he is uh, – so, so in, in the, his story is that Ian Stewart – who played piano for the Stones and was an mm-hmm. original member until they, until I, their manager Andrew Lou Oldham, I think, uh, uh, booted, ordered the band to fire Ian Stewart at least from being officially a member because he didn't look the part because he was a bigger <laughs> guy and you know didn't have maybe the the teenage girl attracted good looks, um, but but Ian Stewart worshipped Johnny Johnson. I think that's how he learned about Johnny Johnson to say, he goes, you know, have you heard, you know who the piano player is on these records? This guy's amazing. And then that, when Ian Stewart told Keith, he said, so Keith said, I got this gig as the band director for the film for Barry. And Ian Stewart says, find Johnny Johnson. He's still alive and he's still playing in St. Louis. And so Keith talked to Chuck right. and said, hey, where, you know where Johnny is? And Chuck goes, yeah, Johnny, he plays around town. I'll find him. And And so then, Keith gets to know Johnny plays with them, and Keith says, wait a second, uh, I, I think you, you might have helped create the music for this stuff. And, and you know, so people, kind of the essential question to all of this, and it ties into the lateness of the lawsuit, is why didn't Johnny br- bring this up earlier? Um, and one right, because the these were huge hits in the 50s and 60s, obviously, yeah. decades before he sued, right? Yeah, and so you know, it's like with like with most things, uh, there's there's not one reason, but one of them is Johnny. You know, he he was a very kind of you know it, there was you know f- fire and ice or you know the, the so many of the great creative duos or or you know partnerships in history. You know, Chuck was the go-getter, A-type personality, and Johnny was very right. laid-back, B-type, yeah. and and Johnny. He says, I didn't know that that was what writing songs meant. I thought well, you wrote, wrote songs, it means you wrote them down. And Chuck wrote down his lyrics. And, right. and so I thought that's the only way that you got paid for a song was if you wrote something down. And Johnny said, right. I never wrote anything down. He didn't get that what he was, he says, and he says it on film, in, and this is the contradiction on film in, in the documentary, there's a, there's a clip of Johnny Johnson saying, no, I didn't write the songs with Chuck. And then, 
you know, a minute or two later, there's a clip of Johnny said, you know, Chuck would bring in lyrics and we would get together and we'd work up some music to him. Right. And, and so that, you know, so, so it took people like, eventually it took people, I think, like Keith Richards. And then he also says Bo Diddley and Little Richard, when Johnny was touring and playing with them in these later years, said, hey, you should book into seeing if you could get some, something out of this. Uh, right. because you, they had the view, according to Johnny, that he helped them, that Johnny helped uh, create these songs with Chuck. And so the piano keys issue you, is the other part that you brought up. That, when people who are talking about this, on, you, know, you can find it online, people that, I, I don't think it's a small point. I agree with you. I also think it might be a little bit of a red herring because, mm-hmm. uh, and Chuck, they get into this at the deposition in this case, and Chuck said, yeah. you know, uh, I knew all these chords too. He said, Maybe "Yeah, Chuck Keith disputed it." He's, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, and and because what Keith says is these are jazz chords, these are Johnny's chords, and and so the I think in short the 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 Chuck's Chuck's response to this, and it seems you know pretty well put together in my view, is that basically you know Keith Richards was a rock and roll guitarist, um, and so he didn't play and use these jazz chords. When he was playing guitar, he saw right. piano players using them. But right. what Chuck says is, I was a jazz, you know, I knew my jazz, and I played all these chords, and I and I got huge hands essentially, and I can play all these jazz chords. And so I play guitar and and write songs in these weird, to you know, rock and roll guitarists weird chords. Um, right. And so they, this, you know, so it's not necessarily the fingerprints of Johnny Johnson it can just as easily be the fingerprints of Chuck Berry. So I, I think it doesn't, people look, people look to that to try to find an easier definitive answer. And from my point of view, from what I've done and researched, I think it's not that. It's not that, it's still very interesting, but I think it's, it doesn't provide the answer that a lot of people who are Johnny Johnson supporters in this dispute think it might. Right. And, I, and just in his defense, I mean, look, you're talking about the early days of rock and roll. People weren't as informed, uh, you know, about these issues. I mean, they were just lucky to thankfully make any money doing doing music. Um, so, um, you know, that it is what it is. So, let's yeah, John kind didn't of know mo- these were going to yeah, be, go be successful. John didn't know these going to be successful, multi-million dollar generating songs. Um until right. much until much later, but he still, you know, in theory at least, could have brought the suit a little sooner. But in in copyright law, it's a three year for for joint authorship. If you're going to make a claim as a joint author slash joint owner, it's three years after the your your collaborator has has claimed essentially sole authorship. You know, so so that when you're on notice that they're disputing your joint author status you get three years from that date. And that's a pretty quick turnaround, especially considering the infringement statute of limitations is is much uh, more fungible, I would say. Yeah, because I believe that's three years from the date of the last act of infringement and the last act of infringement, there's some... <laughs> it can um, happen, yeah. I mean, It, it can happen it, right can, now. Yeah, the, yep, exactly. You know, there's a Chuck Berry song 50, being played somewhere. Years. Yep. Yeah, um, that's true. Um, so let's move um, on to, and we'll obviously flesh out the law with the facts of this case here. So you, you have this dispute. Again, it never gets to the merits of the case. But it, it, in this case, or like cases, 
you know, courts have to say, you know, look at the law, uh, both statutory and case law, and, and figure out, you know, who is a joint author. Now, joint author isn't defined in the Copyright Act, but joint work is, and I'll re I have it up here on my screen under Section 101 of Title 17, a joint work is a work prepared by two or more authors with the intention, that's kind of a key word, that their contributions be merged into an inseparable or independent parts of a unitary whole. So that's the definition of a joint work. Obviously, you would need more than one author to create a joint work. So talk about, if you could, the two interpretations or two meanings of intention in that definition. Yes. Yeah, so, so uh, yeah, I think the, the key words there are intention and the term the two or more authors and yeah. copyright law. Copyright Act does not define the term author either, right. and so that that's the other you know so so those are the two main main you know the, the where the rub is on on two of the, on those two words and so intention uh, the the two big interpretations out there um, are that intention just means we we intended to collaborate to you know, to, to merge our creative contributions into one thing, to one work. Right. So, um, so if you know, the piano player and and guitarist sit down, and they want to put their their sound, their piano sound, their guitar sound, or piano notes and guitar notes together into one piece of music, then that would satisfy that definition of or that interpretation of the word intention. Right. The other definition, which has at least Currently, uh, I think the you know is carrying the day in the court system in the U.S. Uh, now is that intention means that they intended to consider the, they being the the contributors at issue intended to consider themselves authors. Right. And, Which, and so, yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> yes. Which is total BS. Uh, we'll get to that part, and I. That's not exactly how you put it. I'm just adding that. But, I mean, obviously the merge part, I mean, look, if you're in a studio with working with other people, you're going to easily pass that test, uh, you know, and I think Johnny and Chuck certainly would agree. Yes, we've all meant to this, to be into one or a group of songs. Um, you know, this intention thing, you know, I kept reading, they're asking Johnny, well, did you consider yourself an author? And I'm like, who cares what he thought? I mean, the reality is, Yep. And I know it's in it's what happened. It's not because you could be delusional and think you are the author when you're contributing very little, or be I, you know, like Johnny, who's sort of you know self you know, not a, as you mentioned a B type personality, and actually not consider yourself the an author, but actually be contributing to the song. Correct? Yes. Yes. And, and that that's it. It, it. The in the night we can get into the details of this, but but the the Ninth Circuit. Um, uh, yeah, go ahead. What are the two, yeah. the two tests or the two courts? Well, you, you know, courts yeah. love tests. <laughs> you got to have a test. Yeah, courts, courts love tests. And so, what right now you have basically the um, the courts are, you know, across the country um, are using a this test developed in the Ninth Circuit uh, in the you know really kind of uh, set in stone by. The uh, the case of Al Muhammad versus Spike Lee, 
and um, kind of known as the mastermind uh, test, correct? Or that's yes. how you refer to it. That's how I refer to it, and you know, I think that that gets to the heart of it. Um, so you have that um, that case, and then you also have the Childress um, versus Taylor decision, I believe. Um, you know, known as the Childress, so it's become known as the Childress test coming out of the Second Circuit. Um, they're both, uh, you know, circa turn of the century cases, you know, 2000, turn of millennium. Uh, and so you have the courts, uh, you know, around the country essentially using one or two of or, or discussing both of these formulations of essentially the definition of joint, you know, the definition of joint authorship, but these courts and these decisions are trying to figure out what is the best meaning of the term intention and the statutory definition of joint work, and then what is the de best definition of the term author in the definition of the joint work. Um, and so what you have is the, um, when you talk about, you know, Johnny, uh, you know, had pretend, you know, arguably or, you know, uh, claiming to make, uh, you know, important contributions to the music, the, the Ninth Circuit and the courts that follow it, they go so far as to say, and it's, I was just looking at the most recent decisions just this morning, uh, you have the Middle District of North Carolina, I believe, citing the, uh, just from a couple months ago, citing the, the Lee case out of the Ninth Circuit and saying uh, that you can make a valuable uh, and copyrightable contribution to a collaborative work and still not be considered a joint author. Right. And, yeah, and, and the Ninth Circuit is an important circuit because obviously that that contains California, where a lot of these cases uh, come from. Um, and I'll just I have the tests up here. So the Childress test from your article is in order to be considered a joint author, uh, the author must intended to be considered a joint author and make an independently copyrightable contribution to the work. The Mastermind test. A joint author must have exercised control over the work. That's the mastermind part. Uh, the claimant, the claim joint author, objectively maintained an intent to be an joint author. And the third part is the audience appeal of the work uh, turns on each uh, claimed joint author's contribution. So, and you detail this. Those are the two main tests. Um, why are those? I mean, I guess we can go back. Why the intention? I think that's pretty evident why that's not a good factor because that shouldn't really matter. Uh, what your intention is should be what you brought to the project or the work. Um, then the control. I guess the other parts are the control and the audience appeal. So if you want to take those in order, what's what's the problem with with doing that? Because obviously Chuck uh, was very. <laughs> Very demonstrative that he was the, I believe he referred to himself as the director uh, in the studio. Yeah, in the band. So I, yeah, he says I'm I'm the I'm the leader in you know the band and I'm the director and so uh, you know I think Chuck is is taking you know whether, whether Chuck knows uh, you know in in going into this that that the you know control uh, you know is is part of it you know is not you know you don't know that for sure but but Chuck is taking that position, which seems entirely, you know, reasonable. I don't doubt that. And right. Johnny doesn't dispute that, that Chuck, and, and Johnny actually says, he says it was, it was Chuck's, the final decision was Chuck. He was the mm -hmm. leader. Johnny admits that. He said, but, you know, but I would bring up these ideas myself. But Johnny, Chuck had the final decision. Well, 
so one thing, the way to illustrate this, I think, well and 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 in brief, uh, of the problem of the control test is so. Then Chuck is asked about the the Chess Brothers and their final say. So you know, so if you kind of take Chuck's Chuck's uh, way he describes the song and and how it's defined as a song mm-hmm. isn't a song until it gets on record. Well, who had the final say over what gets on the record and what's finally on the song then? And Chuck says, well, yeah, the Chess Brothers did. Yeah, um, so if, under and, the control theory, you could argue Leonard Chess could have argued, well, I'm the author. Yes, and I don't think that anybody, you know, from a, and you, you know, you tell me from your, from your perspective and your experience as a musician, but um, unless the, if, if the Chess Brothers, unless they're, they're contributing creatively to the melody and or lyrics of the song, um, I, it seems to me from an industry perspective uh, that, you know, it, we're not thinking that the Chess Brothers here are, are songwriters. They might, be, they might have an argument for being the author of the sound recording. Yeah, totally agree with that. Yep. But not yeah. the underlying song. But if you right. if you apply the control test and you take it to its logical conclusion here, the then the Chess Brothers are are the masterminds. If if the mastermind, as the Ninth Circuit puts it, is the person who has control um, and final say essentially over uh, what goes into the work. Yeah. Also with chess, and I, I, I don't. I think this is one reason why. A lot of people don't know Johnny Johnson until later in his life. Is that Chess would sort of bury his piano more in the mix. Sometimes he would just eliminate it from songs. Chuck's guitar was obviously much more out front than than Johnny's um, than Johnny's uh, piano playing. I mean, you can hear it on some songs more than others, but um, that may explain why he's never gotten his due. Yeah, and that and that is part of it. And I think you know that also gets into. Um, you know, let's say, for instance, uh, if if Johnny's piano was entirely eliminated, so I think Havana Moon, which is you know not the most famous Chuck Berry song, but it's a pretty well known one. Um, Johnny claimed that he was part of creating Havana Moon, and right. he said originally it was done with, with piano, but the re- final recording, as 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 I can recall, there's no piano in it. Right. Um, so does that mean that Johnny? You know, if, you, if there's no piano on the recording, does that mean he wasn't the author of the song? I, and I don't think it does. It no, does. I agree with that. That means he didn't it's play on the piano. song, but yeah. And so that gets into it gets into a little bit of um, there's a to me there's a problematic um, there's just there's there's problems with especially in music of trying to separate and delineate the difference between a song and the sound recording. When you have these separate copyrights, there's, there's good reason to have separate copyrights in each, but it creates difficulties and confusion, I think, both for the parties and the courts, and you see it in this case, of yes. what's the difference between the song and the recording, and how do we attribute authorship and ownership to each or both? How would you, all right, well then I'm just going to ask you, what if I'm, well, how would you explain it to somebody who just didn't know any a lawyer, even a non-lawyer? How would you explain the difference to somebody? <laughs> uh, uh, with great difficulty. <laughs> uh, it, it, I'll I'll do my best. I, no, because I, I, I have an extra. But I'm I'm just curious to hear you know another person who studied this just give you know your shot at it because you're right. Yeah, it, is, I, it can be hard. 
Yeah, and obviously they're I, they're in each other's. They're just intertwined. They they're intertwined. I think the sound recording, um, as a rule, and 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 I think you know there are exceptions to every rule as, as we lawyers know and make our living off of. Uh, but I think as a general matter, as a rule, the the sound recording is a derivative right. work of the song itself. You know, so you have right. a song, and then you have a sound recording. Um, and, and, and it gets easy when it gets a lot easier, at least when the song is worked up perhaps in a rehearsal or in, or a live setting or on a demo tape. And then, then, you know, then you have a recorded, the sound recording that's put out on, you know, for public consumption. And so you say, right. okay, well, there's what, it, what was on, what was written down or rehearsed or, you know, recording in a demo setting. And that's the song. And right. then, What's released out there is is a is a derivative, you know, kind of polished up version of the underlying song that was written or recorded. Um, and so, but but you could have so you could have an author, let's say Johnny and Chuck, um, or let's let's take Johnny out of the mix and just say this is one that Chuck wrote himself with nobody, you know, one of the ones that Johnny says I didn't have anything to do with. Right. Um, but you get into a studio setting with the Chess Brothers, and the Chess Brothers bring in um, some, uh, they bring in a uh, tambourine player. Or they, one of the chess brothers gets on there and starts doing sound effects, um, you know, tapping on the desk or something during the, during the recording. Well, all those, th- all those extra elements could be c- contributions to the sound recording that yep. makes them authors of a sound recording. Um, yep. But that doesn't usually, that doesn't, I think, often create as many problems in practice because if, if it's a derivative work of, if the sound recording is derivative of the, the underlying song, then, you know, then at least, again, in theory or as a general matter, Chuck Berry is the owner of the song itself. And then those people, you know, while they, they are authors, can be co-authors of the sound recording, Chuck's the owner of of all of that, right? Um, so they they don't get you know they don't get a necessarily a slice of the pie if it was a, a pre-existing song. Where the problem comes in, where it gets a lot messier, is where like you talked about, people can come in cold to a studio and they work. There's no song. There's nothing that you come into beforehand, and everything is worked out on recording, especially in a live recording. Let's say yeah, like then it's release, really it's, tricky to figure out who authored that. Yeah, um, so that's where it although, gets more dif- right. difficult. Uh, all right, so, that was good. What, what's your is, is do you have? Well, I, I think that's right. I think that? the song is the melody and the lyrics, broadly speaking. The sound recording is how it sounds. Um, and again, once I think another helpful way to look at it is one song can and often does have multiple sound recordings. You can have the demo version. You can have a live version. You know, even on Chuck's chess collection, there's alternate takes. There's a single version. So. Uh, no, I think that's exactly right. And and thinking of the sound recording as a, der- a derivative work uh, does help in that. But it, it's hard because the song is in the sound recording, and you know. Yeah, uh, you you. I know you're a big uh, a Beatles guy, Jim, and uh, I don't know if you if you if you've read or seen, and if you haven't, you might be interested in uh, a book. I think it's called Here, There, and Everywhere by Jeff Emmerich, um, who, who was, was the, the engineer. Uh, wasn't he? Yes. Wasn't he sound engineer he, on some of their later he, stuff? Yeah, I, I think he was the sound engineer on the Beatles recording, starting from 
or at least the primary sound engineer. I think he was working on some of the earlier ones as, as like an assistant. But I think he was the primary one starting in the revolver sessions um, in, in 66. I think it was Ken Scott was the leader, lead engineer before him who ended, went on to work with Bowie. Um, but but uh, Emmerich, so he you know, writes this book and details a lot of the behind the scenes of the sound, how the sound was created for some of these intricate, you know, um, yeah. especially the Sgt. Pepper era, intricate uh, um, productions that he and, you know, with George Martin, of course, were working up. And, and I think, you know, it, it just, to me, it really illustrates well how, how, a, how a producer and an engineer can be creative contributors. Um, Absolutely. You know, and production so, is a distinct part of a sound recording. I mean, there's no question yep. about that. Especially the more complicated it gets. I mean, production, from, from my from my understanding, I mean, it can be as simple as, and the Chess Brothers were maybe more in this vein of more kind of like pressing record. Um, yeah, and it was yeah, but, and it was it was older ahead. too. I mean, the the recording yeah. technology was not probably as great as what the Beatles were using a decade later. But yes, um, but 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 the more, and I just read another great book. Uh, you know, your listeners might be interested in uh, um, Peter. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, uh, Guralnik, who did the, uh, his biggest books, I think, were the Elvis, two-part Elvis biography um, that came out in the late 80s or 90s, uh-huh. uh, Mystery Train and Careless Love. He just did a bio on, uh, on Sam Phillips, um, the right. man who invented rock and roll. It just came out in the last couple of years, and I just finished it. And, and it, again, detailing the role of Sam Phillips as a producer, even with the limited technology, you know, what he added creatively um, and inspirationally to the, you know, to this, the Sun Studios sound and the slapback echo and other things. A lot more cooks in the kitchen, if you will, on the sound recording, although it can be on the song too, but. um, And and again, it's it's really, it becomes a temporal or timing issue then. Yeah. Because, Because, yeah, it's, you know, especially if you start expanding the definition of what the song is past melody and lyrics. Right. So let's return now to the, 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 the test, a couple of other things that I wanted to touch on. So why, can't I, why is it a good or bad idea to, to say, well, my, what I contributed was or was not separately copyrightable, and so therefore I should be considered a joint author? Because that is sort of one of the tests. Yeah, I I think, yeah. Well, so so part of the problem there is what we consider independently copyrightable. Right. Um, So the the way the the courts view it, um, you know, by and large, is that independently copyrightable means that uh, if if you you know, you, Jim, you, you are the one to um, press record on your, you know, when you did the recording of mm-hmm. one of your songs, or you are the one to put pen to paper. Because you have, and, and that makes very, very good sense in when you're talking about whether something is copyrightable as, as, a, as a work as a whole. Um, because it's the difference between, we, we don't own ideas, um, we have to, as a society, we want people to, you know, the idea, they, we wanted to get it from their head onto paper 
or onto in the song instance, you know, especially onto the onto the recording. And so right. it, it, it makes good sense that you can't have copyright ownership on something until it's fixed in a tangible medium of expression, to use the words of the statute. That's but, correct. But when you get in, if you take that and you apply it to a collaborative setting, why do we care if Johnny was not the person who, who put this, these, um, uh, you know, at least as a society, why do we care if he wasn't the one who ultimately played the piano on the recording or wasn't the one to press play or wasn't the one to write it down as long as Chuck took those ideas, took that sound, and brought it into the studio and we got it, especially if you're a utilitarian, you know, if you're a justifier of intellectual property for the benefit of society, um, we don't necessarily, why do we care? And I don't think mm -hmm. we necessarily do. And, but what happens then if we take that and put it in, into play in these collaborative, collaborative scenarios, um, it div can divest and take away Johnny Johnson's ability to claim it, you know, rights in something where he said, for instance, he said Johnny or Chuck and I would, would come up with this stuff while we were driving between shows when we were on tour. You know, Chuck would, would sing something, and I would you know, be thinking about what, that, what, what I could add to that. And when we got down to the piano, I sat down and I play along with it. Um, right. But if, if, if that never gets recorded there and Chuck brings that in the studio, Johnny now has not contributed something independently copyrightable because he didn't have a, a tape recorder play, you know, or a reel-to-reel -reel recorder um, set up while he was you know, playing that piano in the rehearsal or because he didn't write it down on paper. Now, from a proof right. and evidentiary standpoint, that's, that's maybe the best argument you come up with is to say, well, you know, if, if that's going to make it easier for us to verify that Johnny did what he said he did. Um, but, but, you know, let's, let's be, I, I don't know if that carries a day. And if it is that, if that is the case, let's be more transparent about it than the courts have been. Well, and also, I think you bring this up also in order to be copyrightable, something has to be original. So, you know, what if, I mean, I think you bring this up. What if Johnny, whatever he's contributing, it may, maybe it's some 12 bar blues that, that, that he's, you know, sort of in the air and everybody uses, but it certainly contributes to whatever song he's playing on with Chuck, or maybe he adds a little bit to it or deviates from it. Um, you know, why can't, uh, even though it may not be separately copyrightable, why can't he claim uh, copyright in that? Um, you know, and then I guess the other end of the extreme is in order to be, you know, originality is not a particularly high bar. You know, someone could say, hey, whatever I contributed, I could copyright myself may not make them a, a joint author by that by itself too. So I suppose there's two ends of the spectrum there. Yes, yeah, so, but no, that's a very good point. And that's, you know, there's the fixation aspect, but then there's the originality aspect, independent copyrightability. And so it, there is an argument to say, well, yeah, okay, if, if, if Johnny is not contributing something original himself, then he is not, he, we should not give him the status of author. And I think that there, reasonable minds can disagree on that. I think that that, that you know could be in a, in a given circumstance. I think it's more of it. That should be a case by case determination. Is kind of my perspective. Mm -hmm. I don't think it should be a hard and fast bar because I think what you can look at in when the reality of creation, you have people who are kind of exchanging. You know, in this instance, Johnny and Chuck talking about we're exchanging our musical ideas fast and freely. And what Johnny does, Johnny might be playing something that by itself, 
would not be copyrightable, right. but it inspires and influences the final product in such a way that he's an essential part of this. He is, you know, he is what, and it gets back to what do we define as an author? And I think to me, it's somebody who, who substantially contributes to the final product of right. whatever copyrightable work we're talking about. And I think you can make a strong argument that somebody who, who can, somebody can be contributing what would by itself be a non-original, that, but contributing in such a way that has substantially influences the, the final creative product. And lastly, why the Ninth, I believe it's the Ninth Circuit that the Childress tested, adopts this audience appeal prong. Um, why is that not a good idea? Well, uh, I could say... Or is it a good um, idea? I, I, from your reading, it doesn't sound like you're, you're a fan of it, and I, I kind of concur with that. Well, well my, my best answer and a bit of a self-promoting answer is stay tuned, because that's the next big project I'm working on. Is I, that has got me thinking so much about the audience and the role of the audience in copyright, and especially mm-hmm. in copyright authorship, that... My, my tentative title for my next paper is Shouting to People the, uh, the Role of uh, the Audience in Copyright Authorship or Authorship and Audience in Copyright. You know, it's, it's still a working title. And the Shouting to People, I, I watched a great documentary recently on Mavis Staples, the uh, African-American right. female soul singer. And uh, um, the they talked singer? about – I'm sorry. Yeah, Staples singer. From the Staples yeah. singers, right. Yes, uh, she was you know, the, his family group, and she was one of the daughters, but I think kind of the main lead singer, and then now has, her, has had a great solo career. And they were talking about in gospel music, the name of the game was shouting to people. Can, you know, how, how can the performer get the people shouting and dancing in the aisles? And, and so that's really what this audience appeal aspect, the Ninth Circuit is very unclear and leaves kind of gives no real explanation or a way to apply this in practice but as best you know I, I can tell um, what what they what the Ninth Circuit is trying to say is if when you're looking at is whether somebody should qualify as an you know as a joint author of a work did their their contribution c- contribute to the final audience appeal of the overall work and so it's almost like an equitable kind of um, you know, a just compensation thing is that if if what you did, you know, created you know appeal or sales, you know, I think maybe mm-hmm. uh, you know, when you get down to it, that's maybe what they're really what they're talking about is you know created value and particularly monetary value in this work, then perhaps you should get that should factor into your um, uh, into the authorship. Conversely, if you didn't, if it didn't have that effect you shouldn't be considered an author, or at least that should weigh against you. And then the last piece of it is if we can't tell, if we can't tell, if we can't, you know, if both of them arguably had, if both contributions or three or, you know, if you're four contributions, six contributions, if they all had some influence on the, the audience appeal of the work, but we can't um, break that apart, then that's mm-hmm. evidence that it's a inseparable. That these were inseparable contributions of to a joint work. But um, as you point I, out, you know sometimes it takes decades, years, maybe centuries for to gauge audience. Be, I mean, I just don't know how you, uh, you know, how you would even gauge that. 
I think it's problematic, practically speaking, as you mentioned. I think it's also potentially problematic conceptually speaking. But from a practical standpoint, even if you think, yeah, this is conceptually a great thing, that we should be giving authorship status to people who create, you know, value and works that that appeal to society. Um, And I think there's a reasonable argument for that. Practically speaking, it can be a nightmare, I think, because, yes, the – you know, authorship, the, the appeal of a work and aspects of work can change over, you know, from a month to month, much less, you know, 20, 30 years. And when you have the life of the copyright, you know, being ever expanded by Congress, uh, right. you know, and what you have is you have essentially three years uh, statute of limitations for a joint author to, you know, to a uh, person claiming joint authorship to bring a claim and that they could have this the audience appeal at the time, at that time, weigh against them and take away their rights. And let's say 20, 30 years down the line, while this is making money for their other, their other collaborator who's been been ruled to be the, the sole author, what what that the loser has contri- you know, in the lawsuit has contributed, that could be the most appealing aspect of the work 30 years down the line. And so, to me, that's very problematic to to bring that into the mix and where. Where is that in in the statutory definition? You know, I well, of course it's not. You know, in courts, yeah. you know, given the lack of, I guess, a great definition, yeah. that's what they've come up with. Um, well, they're they're trying to they're trying to say, and so yeah, I mean, to give you're right. I think the what the Ninth Circuit is is saying is that that should be part of what how you define an author. Um, but it's you know, it, to me, it's a pretty big stretch to say maybe maybe from a policy standpoint it's a good thing but do we want courts creating the policy that the appeal of a work determines its authorship um you know it just doesn't yeah. it, it, it's you know where do you where in the term author do we get that concept and the ninth circuit cites a, a learned hand i mean you know the, the very authoritative source yeah. he, he cited an opinion from him in the 1940s as the only support uh, for that piece of the test, and Learned Hand, in this decision uh, that I think it's the it's a mark the decision is is the Marx decision in the 40s. He doesn't necessarily say what they're saying. He says, <laughs> and certainly not. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it's in terms of the you know Learned Hand was not trying to establish a, a a test for that as a you know as a hard and fast one size fits all joint authorship test, but that's what courts are now doing with it because of yeah. this Lee decision in the Ninth Circuit. Well, it, now courts are – all right, let's say you have multiple people contributing to a project, and courts now have to ferret out, well, what you contributed did appeal to an audience, what you contributed did not. I mean, to me, that just seems like a nightmare and not well, very practical. Yeah, and how do you, how, and how do you do, determine that from a, practi- from a practicing, you know, law practice standpoint? Are you bringing in your audience members to testify live in court? Are you taking survey evidence, which survey evidence is typically not, a, you know, not used and allowed in copyright cases, unlike trademark cases. Um, it, so, you know, are you going to use survey evidence then for that? Um, you know, or are you going to use, you know, sales information and record, you know, or, or, you know, two of those, all of the above? It's just they're very open-ended. And courts, since the Lee decision, really have not – they don't know what to do with it. I think you see a little bit – you see litigants trying – all of those things, and courts not being really sure, and I think it just adds to it, this. You know, it's an inherently 
we, we have to be able to, to deal and live in the gray areas in copyright law, and particularly in authorship. And I think that just comes with the territory. Yeah. But, but this makes it like, – let's not make it messier than it has to be. Yeah. You know? I mean it's already a gray area, and frankly that's yeah. why I like it, but um, this does yeah. muddy the waters. Yeah. The the Lee case, by the way, I believe, and I could be wrong on this. He the plaintiff wasn't he like an interpreter for some movie that Spike Lee was making, and then sued Lee, arguing that he was co-author of the movie. Um, I think yes. that's the facts. And so yes. I, maybe the mass of, maybe the part of the reason they adopted the test had to do with the the facts of that particular case. Well, bad facts can make bad law. We all, you know, we all heard, heard that and know that, and I think this is maybe one of those instances. Yeah, absolutely. So that leads us to the need for a new test that you call the Barry Johnson test. You could have just said the McFarland test and taken your own name, but you were <laughs> you called the Barry Johnson well, test. By the way, courts aren't fond of two words test i mean you might have to shorten that but you know, well, yeah. that might so anyway um can you kind of summarize that i'm looking i mean i could read it from your article but can you kind of summarize what your proposal is to sort of attempt to clarify um this issue of, of determining who is a joint author sure uh, you know I, I if you don't mind i'll i'll read it because i tried to make it yeah as, go ahead as succinct as i could um, what you have with the, the Barry Johnson test, you're going to look at did the did the two author and I'll just I'll paraphrase did the two did two collaborators two or more people intend to to merge their creative contributions into one work? So right. that's that and, and that addresses the intention aspect of it. And then two, did they substantially contribute? Make a substantial creative contribution to the final create to the to the work, right? To uh, so the essence so, of the work. Don't you use the word essence at one point? That's thank you. Essence to the essence of the work. Yes. Um, and so these are uh, again, you know, this if you're looking for a bright line rule, um, you know, this this isn't that. Um, you know, it, in the sense of it's it, it's designed to make this. You know, it's a bright line rule designed to be applied on a case by case basis because you're going to have to have um, courts look at what what is substantial. You know, what does a substantial contribution mean, and what is the essence of the work? Now, but I'm not you know I'm not pulling those terms out of thin air. Um, you have the essence of the work is something that's used in a couple different contexts already in in copyright law, uh, and probably most importantly from fair use. Um, which you know people, right. people you know they they throw up their hands at fair use, but it's part <laughs> of copyright law and doctrine. And right. you're talking about when if if it's fair use, one of the one of the factors, one of the aspects of it is, um, are you taking something that forms the essence, uh, you know, that came from the essence of the work, or are you just taking something that was peripheral, you know, right. a a note at the end that nobody would think really was the heart of the song, or are you taking exactly the, you know the main melody or the main riff. Um, okay. And so if, if we're, to me, if, if that's what we're talking about in terms of what constitutes a work and what constitutes, um, you know, borrowing, you know, in a fair or unfair way, let's, let's be consistent and, and use that concept to, um, to, to establish what we, what we mean when we say 
an author of a song, which is somebody who is, who is doing something that we feel is a, that we, that we decide is essential to the work. So, right. you know, and to illustrate in the Barry Johnson case, Johnny Johnson, I think, you know, his best illustration and argument for musical joint authorship is he said the main riff in Nadine um, that, you know, kind of that, that's the main riff and the main hook. It's, it's, and in the final recording, it's done with horns, but you can hear Johnny playing it on piano in the background. He created that. Right. And, and you know, and, and if you look, if you, if you play Nadine right after you play Maybelline, uh, musically speaking, if you're, you know, other than the lyrics, which are different, if you're looking at the music of it, uh, you know, I would, I would, would suggest that it's, they're a very, very similar. Oh yeah. Not almost the same musically speaking, melodically. The difference is that riff. Right. So if you're talking about Nadine as a, you know, as a new song, that riff is very essential to it. It's the, you know, essential. There's that word essence. Yeah, um, the riff, the so, hook, however you want to put it. Yeah, it's it's what the song is sort of built around, essentially. And yes, and so now, okay, now so let's let's use that example and talk about substantial. So, you know, if let's say Johnny Johnson, he came up with the you know the melody of that riff, you know, and the 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 pacing, the rhythm, the melody of it on the piano, but a trumpet player plays it later. The trumpet player, you know, um, like stretches it out a little bit. Maybe makes that last note a little longer. Um, you know, maybe, and that trumpet player claims, well, I can't, you know, I created, I substantially contributed to the essence of the song because I did that. Maybe there's an argument there, but I think it's not as strong an argument as Johnny Johnson, who came up with the riff initially on piano. And you know, and then showed it to that trumpet player. Um, we have, you know, Johnny now has, you know, he he has a, I think, a stronger, much stronger argument to say I substantially contributed to the creation of this song because, in the essence of this song, because I was the one who came up with this riff, and just because a trumpet player played it and you know, added a little another uh, beat or another second onto the end of it. That's you know that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about a substantial contribution. So it sounds like, and I'm paraphrasing here, that at least under the old tests or old tests, um, Chuck may have a better chance. But under your test, at least for some songs, I mean, and you tell me if I'm wrong. You 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 know this case better than I do. At least Johnny has a better argument. Is that a fair summary? Yes, I I think Johnny would have. The way I break it down in the article is I think Johnny, you know, if this would have gone to trial and decided on the merits, um, I think, you know, you know, juries can do kind of anything. But I, yeah, I think even if, even, if a jury, even if a jury ruled in his favor, I think there's a good chance it gets overturned on appeal um, for, for a couple of reasons. One is that he didn't regard himself as an author. Um, and so right. if you use that as your – as as your your definition of intent, Johnny loses, and he could get that could get overturned on appeal for that basis. The other one is on a number of the songs, because Johnny would, didn't didn't write or record the you know write down on a piece of paper or press record when he was playing piano when he was contributing these songs. He can lose on the independent copyrightability aspect. Mm -hmm. um, also, maybe on this originality piece to it as well. So right. I think what what my test does is it. You know, it 
creates a situation where those those artificial uh, hard and fast barriers to uh, qualifying as an as a joint author are you know are no longer there. I'm not saying that they can't factor into. There, there is some. There, I think there is arguments to to say that the things that we talk about in terms of independent copyrightability or intent, you know, uh, intention, those things are still there in my test, um, and they can right. be fact weighed in. Um, right. But they but they don't become these hard and fast barriers to um, to these. You know, what what are somebody like Johnny, who's a substantial creative contributor? Yeah, I think your test puts the focus where it should be, which is on the work, and in this case, the song itself, and how that came into being. Um, and again, that admittedly is, is a gray area. And before we finish up, and we, we do need to wrap up here in a little bit, I wanted to conclude how your article concludes, because um, I'd never thought of this before, but you argue for a compulsory license for contributors. So can you kind of... Um, Explain what that entails, because I, I must admit, the first time I read it, I'm like, what? What does this <laughs> what? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> yeah, this is, this is getting, yeah, this is the, on the wonkier side of the article. Um, and what this gets into is Johnny has, and so this, this didn't get litigated, and I think, in, you know, hindsight's 2020, um, and I, you know, I wasn't on his legal team initially, but I think the way that Johnny might have overcome the statute of limitations in this case is if he would have made the alternative argument that, okay, you know, the first argument is I'm a joint author of these songs. Right. But if you rule against me on that, in the alternative, my contributions to that were on record that I played, where I played the piano, were part of the song. Right. Um, you know, so so, there, so meaning, well, let's back up. They're separately they're, copyrightable. I mean, they were separate. They're independently copyrightable. Right. In, right. And, exactly. And Thank so, you. and so, I am the owner of those pieces. And and I was and I gave a license, you know, an implied license to Chuck Berry to use those in these songs and on these recordings. But but it was not a irrevocable license. And mm -hmm. that now I'm I'm revoking. You know, I'm terminating that license. So <laughs> right. what Johnny could have claimed then is that going forward, you can't use any of these songs um, without my permission. And well, what would me, that mean? Like, Chuck, no one could play that? I, I guess that's where I just – like, I don't know how that would look. What it means is <laughs> – You know what I mean? Is that it, yeah. What, what it means is Johnny <laughs> could essentially stop the, the further sale – of the records uh, that, okay. that have these that, that have these songs on them without his Chuck. permission. You know what oh, Chuck yeah. would do? Make him a joint author. <laughs> well, <laughs> they, that, that might that exactly that. I think if, if that argument had been made, um, it could have driven a settlement, uh, especially if the court would you know would have let that claim survive. Because the way that claim survives is that then becomes an infringement claim, right. an infringement. You know, is the statute of limitations gets renewed for, with every act of infringement. So the last time that a record was sold with those, you know, and those they, they keep getting reissued. You know, these songs. They do these records. And so Johnny says the last, you know, the last time you, you know, you uh, issued this, you infringed on my copyright because I sent a letter to you, revoking 
the revoking your right to use my my contributions to them. In, in the way, what got me thinking about this is you know, people, your listeners might know of the the Garcia versus Google case. The, right, where, and you mentioned that in your article. Yeah, and and basically where this this um, uh, these actress uh, in a film, you know, for time purposes, I won't get into, go into too much detail, but she essentially says, um, uh, I was a uh, she doesn't want this film out there, and she the reason Google's a party is because she is was trying to get it taken down off of YouTube, owned by owned by Google, uh, and is trying to con, you know to stop dissemination of this film. And she says I can do that because I was the owner of my independently contrib- copyrightable contribution as an actress to this film. Right. I'm not a joint author because she didn't want authors. She didn't like the film, but. I have apparently not. I, I, yeah, yeah. I have control over my, you know, I, I independently independently uh, copyrightable performance, and I am the copyright author and owner of that. And it generated, you know, uh, it generated an initial decision. I think at the preliminary injunction stage in her favor. Now, um, uh, in bank or on bank, I prefer uh, the Ninth Circuit overruled that. But I think it's still a loophole that's out there that is not good for copyright law and not good for the, you know, our society. That that Johnny Johnson, I think he's got a, you know, more power to Johnny and people like him who want, you know, want to have their day in court on a joint authorship claim. But collaborators, I think, should not be able to essentially hold works hostage um, under this theory. And so what I'm trying to do is to close this loophole. And say we can build in one way to do that is to build into the Copyright Act a compulsory license to essentially say that if you're a you know a creative contributor but you're not you're not what we consider an author, you can't essentially hold a work hostage uh, by um, you know by claiming that you have independent copyright right. author ownership of your little piece. But you could take that, but you would own what you contributed and presumably use that in a different work. Is that correct? Do I understand? Like, let's say I play drums on a track. I can't prevent on my track. You can't prevent me from releasing it, but I could, if I own that, could I use that on a different track? That particular yeah, drum part? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think that. As a I'm contributor? Trying, yeah, I would not try to. You know, my proposal doesn't, I think, prevent that or try to stop that. What it does is it just prevents you as the drummer from essentially, you know, uh, holding hostage uh, okay. you know, or ransoming the, that, that, that first recording. It doesn't stop you from using it elsewhere, but it, pre- it prevents you from, you know, from claiming, um, you know, ownership in such a way. It, so so you, you have now, by, by contributing, by by playing that those drums in that collaborative environment, my compulsory license says you have now given an irrevocable compulsory, you know, irrevocable license to your to whoever is the author of okay. that. And that's good for that song. I like that as a songwriter. But yeah. I guess can the drummer? Let's say, I don't know. Let's say it's a fairly distinctive drum or bass, however you want. But can that drummer then claim, well, I own this particular drum pattern and use it on his solo album? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, can he claim, oh, I didn't author the song, but I did contribute to this drum part. Do, 
does he own that drum part then? Well, he wouldn't own the. I, I think. I think he has an argument that he owns the drum part. Okay. Um, well. Or maybe well, that's I guess, how I was reading your language, and maybe I was misreading yes, he, the language of the he does. He language. does have an argument, and that, that therein lies the problem, I think, for collaborative works, um, is that he, if he are, he can argue that he owns it, and then, and if we don't have a compulsory license in the collaborative setting, if the parties don't think of you know to to, to contract ahead of time, which as a practice note, you know, you all this should that, be boys and strongly listeners, you should do that. <laughs> if you're if you're a if you're a songwriter if you you know if you're a creative uh, you know a, a if you're in the creative arts in any way shape or form or if you're a lawyer advising somebody like that this should all you know be suggesting work it out ahead of time but the reality is people don't always do that so we have to have these rules no. in place to deal with the situations where they don't like a Chuck and Johnny situation because right. Chuck well Chuck and Johnny said we had no agreement there's no contract. Um, yeah, and those are the early what, days of rock, and and I suppose yeah. you know major label world now. I suspect, or Nashville, I suspect this is all nailed down. It, yeah, but but if you if these people, let's say you know the Star Search, you know America's Got Talent, you know those type of enterprises, they're they're finding people, um, you know, or labels mining for talent. These songs could have been created before they ever get to these labels. And, you know, and right. if people don't have, you know, and that's where that this still comes up, I think, even in the major label environment. But, yeah, I think these, these rules come into play and are most important in, in things that are, that are not in developed, in, you know, creative enterprises that are not in developed industries because you don't have this industry practice and contractual framework already set up. And Absolutely. then, you know, then, you're, then you have to have, you know, be guided by these default rules. Um, but so, so the problem is, I think, with, with the drum owner or the drum part, you know, who, who claims ownership, uh, great. You know, you can, you can, you know, use your drum part on anything else, but what you can't do is, you, is to say, because I own that drum part, uh, you now can't, you know, even though I agreed to play on the track with you, um, I am revoking my permission now that this, right. you know, coincidentally now that this song is a multi-million dollar seller, um, right. <laughs> and, and is being used in movies, et cetera, et cetera. I'm revoking my permission that I, you know, that I implicitly gave you to use my drum parts on your song, right, or, or sound recording. That's the problem that exists and was highlighted in the Garcia versus Google case, and I don't think, you know, definitively resolved um, by the Ninth Circuit. In that situation, I think this is still hanging out there. It came up in a in a case where Jay Z and uh, uh, where Jay Z had a uh, background singer come in, right, and, and sued she, him. <laughs> yep, she, she sang she counter melody, and, said, and didn't she? I think she argued. I could be wrong that she owned the master. I don't know if it was the song, but go ahead. Maybe you're maybe yeah, you but I think it could come up in the song or in the recording uh, scenario, uh, but you know, or both. Uh, and and the court in that you know in that case at least you know gave gave some credence to this idea. This is pre Garcia versus Google. Uh, I think even pre Johnson Berry. So this thing was not this this theory was out there. It just not was not prominent. Um, but this idea that yeah you know if you under you know under a straight reading of copyright law uh, that you know and and the, and the idea of licensing 
this is a viable theory where, you know, she, yeah, she gave initial permission, but she can revoke that. And I think that's a big problem uh, that, you know, I think a compulsory license is one way that, you know, a, a compulsory irrevocable license is one way that can be dealt with, you know, we can deal with this and not, right. you know, prevent or and not uh, allow these contributors who, who are paid and voluntarily contribute to, collaborative efforts from later on trying to ransom them uh, right. for big money. Right, absolutely. So put these things in writing, although don't do it in the studio. You could kill the vibe right before someone starts <laughs> recording. But, you know, it's funny, speaking of this, Glenn Campbell were recording yep. this uh, right after he died. And of course, he was on uh, known as the Wrecking Crew in L.A. and, you know, on very famous recordings by the Beach Boys and pretty much anything that was recorded in L.A. in the 60s, the Ronettes. And Hal, Hal Blaine, he, the drummer. Was, yeah, yeah was Hal really. Blaine, the drummer. And, um, you know, he was asked in this interview I heard the, yesterday, well, you know, you played on these huge hits, you know, and, you you know, you got, I mean, you got paid for it, but obviously, you know, not equal, not even close to what the hits made. And he's like, you know, the, the guy asked him, were you upset about this? And he's like, and Glenn Campbell's from Arkansas. And he's like, you know, I was making money and, it's better than picking cotton, so a lot of musicians, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> didn't get too wrong. I mean, obviously, he had a yeah. successful solo career as well. So, well, um, Funk, Funk Brothers and James Jamerson, the bassist at Motown, uh, same thing. You know, all the Motown hits. You know, were large. Many of them, if not most, were credited to Holland Dozier Holland. But you know that their their in in house music crew, um, especially the bassist. Uh, it was Jamerson, you know, I think, you know, substantially contributed to the essence of these songs, but those were, were work, you know, they were contract and work for hire. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and that, so, yeah, go, yeah, that, go ahead. That happened a lot, but you know, and same with Muscle Shoals and a lot of these famous, you know, famous backing bands. Yeah. yeah and so. I think that's just the nature of, you know, I, I don't know if there's a, a, cause you don't know what's going to be, successful you know you you can't you know and and so uh and and in order for um you know these companies you know motown studios or the studios using the wrecking crew in order for them to be able to fund these enterprises they're looking for the payoff you know contingent on the back end um so they'll pay people right. up front you know to you know like you said in, in a, to pay them in a way that beats picking cotton um and but they're the ones you know that get the payoff at the end um and right. And that's, I don't think, necessarily a bad thing for society, but it does, you know, cause us to, to think, you know, look at it and be like, man, that, you know, you, you, you did some stuff that made a lot of money for a lot of people. Yeah, it doesn't um, seem fair or equitable. Um, yeah, I think, uh, and, and that factors into, um, you know, that factors into copyright law, I think, but, but I think that's where you really have to think about it as a, you know, what do you think, is the best way to design this? Um, are we designing it just for for fairness for individual contributors, or are we designing it in a way that is, you know, encourages the the progress of you know science, which you know I in you know, using the constitutional language, i.e., the you know information across society. Um, right. And you know, and there's going to be winners and losers um, in the you know in that grand game. 
Right. And if the Barry Johnson case teaches us anything, it's that more than one person, you know, it's not a mastermind. It's, it's, it's a collaborative effort, obviously. And Ye- so, yes. And, and, and I think that that, um, it, it does, I think it does show us that. And I think we, uh, when Chuck Berry, who we, we think of as this, you know, lone genius, um, and he's, and he's heralded, uh, you know, in large part because of that, uh, because that's, you know, kind of an amazing thing uh, and, you know, and an attractive thing for us to, you know, he's a superhero. And we realize, right. you know, it's reality is, is more often than not people working together, either, either on a one-on-one basis or, you know, or they're, like, like Chuck said, nothing new under the sun. I was borrowing from my heroes, Tampa Absolutely. Red you know, uh, uh, Louis Jordan and Carl Hogan, his guitarist. And so, you know, we, that doesn't mean abolish this, the concept of copyright or intellectual property. I'm not saying that, but it should, we, we should have a better understanding of that in order to best calibrate copyright law, both to help society, you know, get, get the stuff out there to, to the audience, to the people who are consuming it. Uh, that, helps, that helps the audience. It helps performers because we're paying them uh, and, and creators but also, um, you know, and, and do it in a way that is as fair as possible in the process Absolutely. of that. Can't have absolute fairness. There's no such thing. No. Um, but, but can we make it as fair as possible? And I think, and part of what, I, you know, the, 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 the genesis of my project, and I think the fascinating part of the Barry Johnson case is, I think that, that there was, you know, there's the potential for unfairness in that scenario and, and also, you know, it highlights that unfairness and um, and a and not as well calibrated a system as as we can come up with uh, going forward. And let's see if we can make it better. Absolutely. Well, that's a good note to end on. And look, I could talk music and music copyright law for hours. Um, and I hope to have Thank you me. back, Tim. Absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today. Absolute pleasure being on it, Jim. And great talking with you. And I really. Uh, enjoy and appreciate your your interest in the project. And I urge people to read uh, Tim's law review article on Chuck Berry and Johnny Johnson. And and it's called it's called Fathers.